0: Well, good morning. As a few people awake, let's try that again. Good morning. How are we? It's good. Good. You guys are awake. Uh, we get the good coffee. So I'm hoping that when I come up, you guys are awake by now because uh, we do have the good coffee. So if you hadn't had that, get up and grab that now. Glad you're here today. My name is Kevin and uh, the pastor here at Restoration Church. And excited you guys are here to worship with us today. Uh, this is Memorial Day weekend, so just I uh, wanted to uh, just take a minute and just remind ourselves uh, the reason we celebrate Memorial Day is uh, we live in a country that we're able to come and be able to worship God together in a place like this, and that's a great thing. And so it's nice to be able to honor those who have gone before us to give us this freedom to come and worship you. To start out, I was thinking about this idea, and we've talked about this last few weeks, about there are no perfect churches. And you maybe you've heard this said, there are no perfect churches out there. In fact, there's a great pastor, old dead guy, his name is Charles Spurgeon. I like these old dead guys for some reason. This old dead guy, great pastor named Charles Spurgeon, he once said there was a guy that came up to him and said, hey, I'm looking for the perfect church. I'm looking for the perfect church. And Charles Spurgeon uh, responded, and, and his reply was that if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because then it won't be perfect anymore. And uh, the honest truth is that there is no perfect church. There's absolutely no perfect church. Some churches are going to be worse than others. <laughs> but if you stick around any church long enough, you're destined to find out there's going to be flaws within the church, there's flaws within its people. And Restoration Church were no different. Absolutely no different. I know that Restoration isn't a perfect church because I happen to know the pastor very well. And I know he is far from perfect. And this is kind of a weird way to start out a sermon. This is kind of the weird way to start out a message by acknowledging, you know, we're a church plant. We're a new church. We're trying to plant this church and get more people to come to be a part of restoration and have more people come to know Christ. And we acknowledge from the beginning we've got issues and we aren't perfect. and We don't have it all figured out. Probably not the wisest way to start out a sermon. But you see, unfortunately, too, too many people believe this. They believe that there is a perfect church out there. And they hop around from church to church to church looking for just the perfect one. Just the one that's just absolutely perfect. And what happens is when we we hop around, we begin to miss out on all that God has in store for us through this imperfect vehicle of the church. If you've been with us these past several weeks, we've been in a series called Ignite. Watching is a mission of God, of knowing Christ and making Christ known has spread like wildfire through the early church. And it's been amazing as we've read the first several chapters of the book of Acts. And as we've been studying, we might come to the conclusion, we might look so far and say, man, the Bible is describing the early church as the perfect church. See, if we just went through chapter 3 of the book of Acts, we could say, man, they really have been describing a perfect church. It's been amazing. If we read through chapter 3 only, we see that the church, uh, being a part of the church, was being a part of something bigger than ourselves. We see the first three chapters of the book of Acts that uh, decisions are made with ease and peace. And the Holy Spirit has empowered the people and the church to do seemingly impossible miracles. And we read of masses of people converting to Christ. We've seen this deep, intimate community with true unity. True unity within the church. We look at this and say, man, that is the description of the perfect church. But for the early church, we need to realize that once we get through Acts chapter 3, there's still 25 chapters of the book of Acts left. And throughout those chapters, Luke doesn't gloss over the ugly parts of the church. He doesn't skip the hard trials that they face. And all honesty, as we read through and we see how honest Luke is with the trials that the early church faced, when we see how honest he is, this should encourage us. This should encourage us even as we look at God's word, at the Bible as a whole. We we should, throughout the Bible, we read of the amazing things that people did for God. We think of Abraham, We think of Noah, we think of King David, we think of Peter, we think of Paul. These men did amazing things for God and for his kingdom. But just as much as you read about the amazing things that we did, that they did, we also read about their shortcomings. We read of their failures. We read of the times that they dropped the ball and screwed up and and discredited God through the way that they lived and through the actions that they did. And I look at this, and I see this in the book of Acts. I see we're in this point now where we begin to see some of the shortcomings of the church. We see trials they face. We see issues that they had. And I tell you, that encourages me that I can believe what Luke writes because it's not just this glossed-over, perfect, ideological church. It's real. It's real. We saw the last two weeks how Satan tried to attack the early church from the outside involving the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders of the day. We saw that they were so upset because of what was happening with Peter and with the church that they said, we're going to go and arrest Peter and John, and we're going to bring them into court and try and scare them. So they stop preaching in Jesus' name, and people stopped getting converted. That didn't quite work so well. Uh, today, we'll see Satan try a different tactic to attack the church and to discredit the church. He attacks the church from within. And in fact, we will read today, as we read about this attack, this is still one of the greatest dangers that face the church today. All these years later, this attack that Satan brought in Acts chapter 5 is still one of the greatest dangers that the church faces 2,000 years later. So we're going to open up God's Word today. If you have a Bible, we're in Acts uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. We'll read through uh, chapter five. If you don't have a Bible, you need one. Uh, we've got a couple of ushers in the back. They'd love to bring one forward to you. Uh, if you're a, uh, if a visitor with us and you need a Bible, let that be our gift to you. Take that with you, and 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 take that. Uh, let that be our gift to you. So Acts chapter four, starting in verse thirty-two. Let's go ahead and read this together. Now the full number of those who believed of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out to be, and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things god's words for us today let's pray god we do thank you for this opportunity to come into uh, your presence today that we can open up your word and we can read it and we can learn from it lord i thank you that we live in a country where we can freely open up your word and we can teach it with authority with your authority god and i pray that as we are trying to say god teach me god i pray that you would allow us to have ears to hear and hearts to listen. I pray that we would put the distractions out of our minds and that you would be able to fill us with your spirit to give us understanding and that you would draw us closer to you. Lord, we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So, as we get started today, let's as we get started today, let's recall where we've been the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we read that Peter and John had been arrested by the religious leaders of the day. Because of a miracle of God healing a lame man who had been a beggar in front of the temple. And then after, they, after this miracle, Peter and John were preaching uh, that through the name of Jesus Christ, the man was healed. And they preached that under there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved other than Jesus Christ. And after bringing him into court, the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they realized that there were thousands of people who were believing this message. And there were thousands of people who were praising God because of this miracle that had happened because this lame man was healed. And they realized, you know, we can't do anything to Peter and John right now because if we do, we're going to have a mob after us. And so the Sanhedrin, the court, the religious leaders, they told Peter and John, you can no longer preach in the name of Jesus. And they threatened them not to preach in his name anymore. So last week, We read that Peter and John reported to the church, to their friends, all that had happened. And we see that despite this this fear, despite this this uncertainty of what was going to happen, they held a prayer service. And despite the threats and the potential harm that would come from remaining on mission of knowing Christ and making Christ known, the church prays and asks God for boldness to continue preaching and teaching Jesus Christ and to continue making Christ known. And so, and when we open up our text today, we see in verses 32 to 35, we see this kind of summary statement of what the church looked like as a result of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In fact, as we read through this, this couple verses, this summary statement, this is the second time that we read of a similar type of summary statement of what the church looked like. A few weeks ago, when we studied Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, you see a similar statement as you see right here. That described the early church. This was a beautiful picture of the early church. You read this and say, man, that is a beautiful place to be. I wish that would be the perfect church. Hmm. Verse 32 says that the church, they were of one heart and one soul. I mean, they expre- experienced this tremendous unity. There was no dysfunction within them. They had this great unity. They were on fire together. Verse 32, verse 34, and verse 35 describes the tremendous generosity of the people. That they were helping the church to meet needs of the people within their mix as well as those outside of the church. And verse 33 describes that even with this great generosity, their focus was still on proclaiming the message of the gospel Proclaiming, uh, proclaiming the gospel, uh, eternal life, abundant life, and restoration available through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I love seeing this beautiful picture of the church because we look at this and we say, man, wouldn't that be great for us to look like that? would it be great for, for our church to look like this? But well, the question I feel like we must ask today is, where does this type of summary statement, where does this type of summary of this church come from? There must be something significant to this church because this is the second time that Luke has described this, this church for us. Luke described this close-knit, sacrificial type of family as a, as a church. And the answer to the question is, where does this type of, of family come from? How, where does this type of church come from? Look at verse 32 with me. It says, Now the full number of those who believed Did you hear that key word? To those who believed. This is one of those words that should be circled and underlined in your Bible. They believed. Believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior and trusting him for all you need. Being satisfied with God. With all that God has for you in Jesus. That is the key. That is the root of what's happening in this story. This amazing close church family was possible all because of Jesus, all because of the people coming together and believing in Jesus. Everything good comes from that. When we say, man, I want to experience these good things, it comes as a result of believing in Jesus. But notice in verse 32, that this, this, authentic, uh, this authentic believing in Jesus Uh, And becoming a Christian, it really has three effects on the church. Believing in Jesus, we see three effects on the church. Again, look at verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. See, this is the first effect of believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus results in a love for people. Believing in Jesus results in a love for people. See, as we believe in Jesus, it tightens our heart's relationship to people, especially other Christians. When you become united to God by faith in Jesus, you become united to people through love. This type of community, the the unity they experienced, the, the love of the people, it's experienced only as a result of believing in Jesus. You see, and for this early church, their willingness to share their lives with each other, the willingness to share their possessions with each other, the willingness to say, you know what, let's live life together. Let's figure what it means to follow Christ together. That love came because they believed in Jesus. And it's got to be something that we understand. If we want to experience that type of unity and love, it comes as a matter of believing in Jesus. That is the first effect of us believing in Jesus is that we begin to have a love for his people. We, we then see the second effect as we read on. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And listen to this. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The second effect of believing in Jesus is we have a freedom from the love of things. The second effect of trusting in Jesus is that the heart is loosened in its relationship to things. Things. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people and it cuts the, the bond of love to things. You see, as we talk about the love of things, this is one of the things that Luke continues to, 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 as Luke writes in the Gospel of Luke and throughout the book of Acts, he hits this again and again and again and again about the freedom from the love of things. More than any other New Testament writer, Luke stresses the danger of letting our life consist of the things that we possess. We said a few weeks ago, some of the things that Luke had written, Luke alone, about the love of things. Luke alone tells the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Luke again tells a a parable of the rich fool who built bigger and bigger barns in chapter 12. But as he built the bigger and bigger barns, the Lord took his life and all that stuff became waste. Again, Luke tells the story of God's great ba- banquet and that people wouldn't come because they had fields and cattle to tend to and all these different things to do and they couldn't come and celebrate with God. And again, Luke tells the story of the dishonest manager in Luke 16. And he tells the story of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus Lazarus again in Luke 16. Luke wants us to understand that, that we when we have a love of things, it present, prevents us from having a love of people. He's making a statement that as we come to believe in Christ, and as God begins to give us a love for this people, it cuts loose the bond of the love of things. And I believe Luke is making a point that acknowledging both a love of people and a freedom from the love of things in the same verse, verse 32. I believe what he's saying is that you can't have both at the same time. You can't have a love for people and also a love for things and for money at the same time. Because he's saying that if your heart is united to people and love, then you will set loose the love of the things because things will only have value as a means of loving people. And so here, in this beginning, this early church, we see the two first, first two effects of believing in Jesus is that God gives us a love for his people. God gives us a love for his people, a love for the church, a love for the people around us. And God also frees us from the love of things. And we can begin to stop making things our priority. We can make people the priority. But thirdly, lest we forget, the third effect of believing in Jesus is in verse 33. Verse 33 says, And with a great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus You see, the third result of believing in Jesus is a passion to make Christ known. I can't help but mention this one because it is so important for us to understand. Luke wants us to see that community and evangelism are not at odds. We can have a great gospel community and we can still have evangelism be a part of it. They're they're linked together. Ideally, community is the key to evangelism. And so this becomes what this whole passage, this whole story is all about, is that this is a snapshot of the church, a snapshot of a community of people whose hearts have been utterly revolutionized by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They found themselves being free from the love of money and free from the love of things and to freely care about people to the point that they were willing to sell land and houses so that they could give money to the church for distribution to those who have special needs. And to do that so that they could have the opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ and the resurrection and, and, and the freedom that's available through life in Christ. And as I was studying through this summary statement of their community, I was reminded of what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy and this is exactly what they were doing in Acts chapter 4 it wasn't because they had to it wasn't because they had to do these things in order to earn god's favor it wasn't because the church had a list of rules that said you had to do this no it's because they heard the word of god and they believed what god said when jesus said to them fear not it's your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom He said, man, God is speaking to us right here and right now. You see, the faith and the promises of God's fatherly care produces in us a freedom from fear, a freedom from anxiety. And therefore, we have the freedom from things and the freedom for people and the freedom for love. Now, in seeking to evaluate this passage of Scripture and say, how can we apply this as a church? What does that mean for us one of the dangers that we can do is take an extreme off of this passage of scripture. After of the summary statement, we can go extreme either way. We might decide, you know what, this this passage of scripture is unrealistic. So I'm just going to discredit and say, you know, I don't really need to pay attention to this because, you know, it's not really realistic. The other extreme is we say, you know what? This is what they did in Acts chapter 4. This is what we need to do today. We need to sell everything that we have and and give it to the church. And we just, that's the way it needs to be. And and it needs to be mandatory. You see, there's a danger in taking either extreme. We have no liberty to dismiss this passage as rash and foolish. It's a rash and foolish mistake. And we have no right to sit in our comforts feeling safe and secure in this world. And neither can we say that this should be an obligatory model. Something that all Christians and churches must copy and emulate. But you see, what I do get from this passage is not that we should take either extreme. But what I get from this passage is that we should challenge us as Christians to make costly and radical sacrifices for the church. By all means, churches are, are, are imperfect. But that doesn't diminish the fact that Christ so values the church that he calls the church his bride. He calls the church his bride. And we need to honor the church. See, the church is the fire by which all of our embers stay burning white hot for Christ. She is a community in which we all live and minister to each other. The church is a collection of saints from male to female, from rich to poor, from uh, black to white to brown to, to every other uh, denomination. And, and they are the people who have one thing in common, and that is our eternal soulmate, Jesus Christ. That is what the church is, and she deserves radical and costly sacrifices. So I think this text is not telling us we have to do these things. I think it's a challenging us to call on each other to make costly and radical sacrifices. Can we say that we've done that? Can we say that we've made sacrifices for the church? You know, Mother Teresa, we all know who Mother Teresa is. She said the statement. She said, if you give something that doesn't that doesn't cost you anything, that you can live she said, if you give something that you can live without, it's not really giving. Man, I hate Mother Teresa. I hate statements like that. Because how many times do we say, you know what, yeah, I can, you know, I've got this extra thing. You know, I I can just give this away. It doesn't really matter. You know, I've got this extra time. I can give it away. And it doesn't cost us anything. Mother Teresa would challenge us to say we haven't really given anything in the first place. You see, are we willing to make radical and costly sacrifices for the church, for Christ's bride, for the kingdom? Can we say that we've actually done this? Are we willing? Am I willing? Are we willing to let our commitment to the church affect things like how we live? Like where we live? Are we willing to let our, our commitment to the church affect where we work? Affect how we spend our time? Affect how we spend our money? Affect who we hang out with? Affect where we hang out These are the things that if we are going to say, let's radically sacrifice for the kingdom, for for the church, we should look at some of these questions and say, you know, yeah, that's probably a good point. If I'm really going to sacrifice like the early church did, it should affect the way I live. It should affect the way I spend my money. It should affect the way I schedule my week. What does it look like for you to make a radical sacrifice for the church? We're going to read about this example of a guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas did this great thing and he, and he sold a property and, and, and he gave the proceeds from the, from the sale to the church. You know, maybe for you, maybe a radical sacrifice is, is, is giving to the church. But maybe for you, maybe for you, it's sacrificing of yourself. It's sacrificing of your time. You see, we have so many things that we want to see done here at Restoration Church. We're a new church. We are eight weeks old today. Eight weeks old. We're a baby. But you, we have so many things that we want to see done here at Restoration. We have places that we want to have a presence for Restoration. We have families that we want to love on. We have ministries that we want to partner with. But it all takes time and it takes people. And I tell you, one of the things that we've struggled with is we have a hard time getting enough people able to help out in the children's ministry on Sunday morning. What type of radical sacrifices are we willing to make for the church so that God's kingdom can be expanded? As Luke describes this great community to us, we're going to see that he gives us two examples. These examples actually become two different types of Christianity that we can follow. The first example he gives us is a guy named Joseph in verses 36 and verse 37. This is the guy who had caught the vision. He caught the vision of having a view of the church and making a radical sacrifice for the church. It says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, I love this. Because this guy, Barnabas, he wasn't perfect. We're going to see later, we're going to see how he gets caught into sin later in the book of Acts. But he was seeking wholeheartedly to follow Jesus. And he was seeking to sacrifice of himself for the kingdom the kingdom. To the point that he was willing to give to the church sacrificially. He was given the name of Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement. See, we we, we see this brief introduction to Barnabas here in Acts chapter 4. But see, later we're going to see that Barnabas plays a key role in the church. Later we see him as the advocate of the new convert Paul in chapter 9. And we see that Barnabas becomes the shepherd of the new Gentile converts in Antioch in chapter 11. And we see that Barnabas, in chapter, again in chapter 11, was trusted with relief for the poor. And we see that Barnabas in chapter 13 became the first partner of Paul on his missionary journeys. And we see in, verse, in, in chapter 15 that Paul was an ad, or Barnabas was an advocate for giving John Mark a second chance after John Mark screwed up. You see, Barnabas shines as one of those mature, reliable, lovable leaders of the early church. And it started right here in Acts chapter 4. Luke shows how Barnabas' trusted ministry began. It began with a demonstrated freedom from the love of things and a heart of love for people. He sold his field, and he gave all the proceeds to the apostles. And in this story, he stands for the way... Uh, for the way true faith in Christ creates a bond of love for people and a freedom from the love of things. We can look at this and we can see there's a guy who is seeking wholeheartedly to follow Jesus, to sacrifice for the kingdom. But Luke also gives us another example in chapter 5, the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, as we read through the first 11 verses of chapter 5, on all appearances, it appears that Barnabas and Ananias did the same thing. We read through it and think, it sounds like they did the same thing. They both sold the property. They both brought the proceeds of the sale to the apostles. And they both committed the proceeds to the apostles' disposal, to the church's disposal. Church, use it to meet needs. Use it for what it needs to, for what you need to do with it. But the only difference here was that Barnabas brought all of the sale money. And Ananias only brought a portion of it. Now there's nothing wrong with choosing to withhold a portion of their sale money. Peter plainly said in in, in verse 4, he said that their property was their own before he sold it and after they sold it. No one was under any obligation to sell a piece of the land or upon selling it to give it away any of the proceeds, let alone all of it. But you see, the story isn't, that's not the whole story. When Luke wrote that Ananias Kept back a portion of the proceeds for himself. Luke uses this, this this Greek word. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are into like Greek language and that type of thing. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, and I spent about 20 minutes last night trying to learn how to say this word. Let's see. Let's see if we can say this five to three times fast together. Nosfidzomahi. I said that wrong. Nosfidzomahi. I can't even say it. I spent about 20 minutes trying to s- learn how to say this word. See, I'm not a Greek scholar. I just stayed at Holiday Inn last night. Just remember that commercial? Sorry, uh, had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> but, Le- but, but Luke uses this great this Greek verb, which means to mishandle or to embezzle. The only other time that it is used in the New Testament was in Titus 2, when it is translated in the ESV as pilfering. Where the NIV, is translated as stealing. The only other time that we see this word used in Scripture is in the Old Testament with a guy named Achan, who, again, did the same thing. He gave the appearance of giving all of the money, but he kept a portion of it for himself. You see, therefore, we have to assume that before the sale, Ananias and Sapphira had entered into some sort of agreement with the church to give the total amount of the sale to the church. They wanted to be like Barnabas. Yeah, Barnabas did this. Ah, that was great. People gave him credit. We want to be like that. So church, we're going to give the whole proceeds to the church. But when, it time, when the time came, they only brought a portion of it instead of what they had promised. And so they were guilty of stealing. But this, however, isn't the sin that Peter concentrates on, not the sin of stealing. Peter hones in on something more dangerous something that would and could completely disrupt the growth of the church and ruin the testimony of the mission of the church. And that was hypocrisy. Peter's complaint was not that they lacked honesty and only bringing a portion of the seal, but his complaint was that they lacked integrity or they only brought a portion of the seal but pretended like they brought the whole thing. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the true sacrifice. So in order to gain a reputation that they had no right, they told a flat-out lie. Their motive was not to relieve the poor. Their motive was to fatten their own ego and make them look even better than they were in relation to Ananias and Sapphira and their example, there's one thing I want us to understand from them before we bring this to a close. I want you to notice the gravity of their sin. I want you to notice the seriousness of hypocrisy. Peter stresses this in his response to Ananias in verse 3. When he said, Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Then again in verse 4, Peter says, Ananias hasn't lied to to men, but to God. And then in verse 9 to Sapphira, Peter says that Sapphira has tempted the Holy Spirit. You see, this wasn't a small sin. This was a big deal. And most of us were probably shocked by the severity of God's judgment, just as I'm sure as the early church was. Their judgment was, was immediate death for the sin of hypocrisy. And this is one of the rare times in the New Testament where such a direct act of immediate judgment is exacted. After all, we see later in the book of Acts, we see other people caught in the sin of hypocrisy. We even see Peter and Barnabas caught in the act of hypocrisy, and yet they don't fall dead. They don't fall down dead when they were exposed. So why is there this drastic consequence for Ananias and Sapphira? I believe it's because God is just and he wanted to show right from the beginning of the church that the sin of pretending the sin of hypocrisy in the church has serious has serious consequences and the result of this specific consequence of this specific judgment by god stepping in immediately we are told twice a great fear came upon the whole church We're told twice great fear came upon the whole church Because of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. That certainly would have made me nervous as well. Because I can't even count how many times I've talked a greater spiritual talk than I've actually walked. And so to try and summarize this whole story and say, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from the example of Barnabas and the example of Ananias and Sapphira? To summarize it is to say, God hates hypocrisy. Jesus condemned hypocrisy repeatedly while he was on the earth. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus describes the hypocritical religious leaders of the day as whitewashed tombs who looked good on the outside, but inside were full of dead people's bones, and uncleanness, and rottenness, and nastiness. You see, hypocrisy is is such a danger facing our church. Because while we think we can pretend to be good little Christians who have such neat and orderly lives, the lost world around us sees right through it. Or when our true lives are exposed, it discredits all we've done and all we've said in the past. And that's why we hear the the, the common complaint about the church. So I don't want anything to do with the church because it's just full of hypocrites. The best example of exposing hypocrisy that I've seen was while I served at Madison House. We would often have people who would call, and they'd have this epiphany of, you know, God has told me I need to do something, and I need to go and, and love on these kids that need to be loved. And so I'm, I'm coming, and I'm, I'm, I want to come and volunteer my time. And they would give all the right Sunday school answers, and have the appear on the phone to have a right purpose. <laughs> Sounds good on the outside. Sounds like all the right Sunday school answers as to why they want to come and help. But man, a lie when some of these people would get downtown. (laughs) The kids could smell the hypocrisy a mile away. They could smell the hypocrisy a mile away. One one, One lady in particular, I don't know what her motive was, but the kids became so reserved and shut off to her Because she acted and treated them like a phony. And the kids knew it. And they stopped coming because this lady would come. And she would act all religious. And there was nothing behind it. These kids could tell when somebody was volunteering for their own selfish purpose. And when they truly cared about them. And the sad thing is. The sad thing is. That that hypocritical Christianity was a Christianity that these kids saw. That became the aroma for what they believed Christianity was about, hypocrisy. It was about looking good on the outside while being nasty on the inside. And that became the aroma of Christianity. And I can't tell you how many kids that turned off to Christianity because it's just fake. Fortunately, fortunately that wasn't the only Christianity that these kids saw. Look, here at Restoration Church, we're not looking for pretenders. Neither are we looking for perfect people. We are a group of regular, ordinary people following an extraordinary God. I've got a brother-in-law in Boise, Idaho, who's a pastor. And he describes that same statement like this. He says, we are, regu- he says we are real stinking people. You see, that means that it's okay if you don't have it all together. It's okay. That means it's okay if you're still growing in your relationship and still trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ. (laughs) The truth is, to be a Christian, to have Christ forgive you of your sins, means that you've got to be a sinner. There's no surprise that we're sinners. And as a Christian, we're still sinners. We're just forgiven sinners. And that's what the world needs to see. They don't need to see a phony Christian front. They don't need to see us pretend that everything is perfect and great and dandy. And we don't have any struggles. We don't have any problems. (laughs) What they need to see, what the world needs to see, is that we are forgiven sinners who have real lives and real struggles and real problems. But despite... Those problems, we choose to follow Jesus with our lives. In the midst of our issues, we choose to say, God, I'm going to do it your way, even though there's all these issues around me. That's what the world needs to see. It's not about pretending for us to be good Christians that nothing ever bad happens to us. No, it's it's about repenting and surrendering and seeking and following Jesus every day of our life in good times and bad, because certainly... As Christians, we aren't prevented from having to go through bad times. We aren't prevented from having to deal with struggles. And I tell you, what's going to speak to the world about Christ is not that we pretend we don't have bad problems, but that through those bad problems, we have a Christ that we can rely on. That we have a church body that we can come to for support and encouragement, because that's what people want. They want to know we're not alone. We want to know that when we face those hard times, there's someone we can turn to for help. A very real help. I hope that today that you can say that you don't have it all together. Because I believe that's the type of heart that Peter and the early church and Barnabas had. That's the type of heart that God can work miracles through. That's the kind of heart that speaks to the world about who Christ is, that makes Christ known, that despite anything going on, Christ is still Lord. We can still follow him. Amen?